Okay. All right, let's pray together. Father, Lord, we just come before you now. Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for your grace, your mercy. Please be with us now. Give us wisdom and insight into your word, Father, into this glorious subject of salvation. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 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 So the reason why I wanted everybody to be here, as many people as could, was just because we're really at the very heart of uh, systematic theology. Well, I mean, it's kind of hard to say that, right? How do you choose one doctrine over another? But I mean, if there's one thing that I really want our church to be grounded in and to be uh, unified around, it is the doctrine of salvation. Um, There's nothing more important than that. There's nothing more important than knowing a proper soteriology because it shapes all of your thinking It shapes everything you believe about the gospel, everything that you believe about God, everything that you believe about uh, life, really. I mean, it has uh, application for everything. And today, uh, what I want to look at is the Ordus Salutis. And what is the Ordus Salutis? What is the, those are Latin words. Anybody read Latin in here? Okay. No? But I have a funny feeling some of you still know what that means. (laughs) What does it mean? Order of salvation, that's right. It is uh, just an old reform slogan uh, that tells us, well, first of all, that there is an order to salvation. I didn't always know that. I didn't know. I just thought, salvation, what are you talking about? What order, right? But uh, obviously, once you start studying the Word of God, you start realizing, actually, there is an order to salvation. Um, And it is very important. Uh, for a lot of different reasons, let me just give you a real-time example. Uh, we were doing evangelism at UNT, and I ran into a group of uh, Church of Christ folks. And uh, if you know anything about the Church of Christ, at least this you know, particular wing of the Church of Christ, or really most Church of Christ folks, they will identify the doctrine of baptism with regeneration. And so for them, when you say... Have you been born again? They, what they hear is, have you been baptized? <laughs> so that for them, baptism and regeneration are synonymous. So what I tried to show these folks, and it was difficult to untangle sort of where they were coming from, but I tried to show them, look, the problems that you're going to run into if you say that baptism and regeneration are synonymous is an issue that goes back to The Order Salutis. If you say that regeneration is um, uh, equal with baptism, that what you're espousing is that baptism precedes faith. And I asked them, are you ready to own up to that? Are you ready to acknowledge that a person should be baptized before they have faith in Christ? And of course, oh, of course not. No, absolutely not. No, it goes together. You have to believe and then you get baptized. I said, okay, certainly. But you would never say that you baptize first and then a person comes to faith in Christ. Of course not. Then I said, well, do you know that in the Bible, regeneration precedes faith? And they said, no, absolutely not. I said, yes, absolutely it does. (laughs) Turn with me to the book of 1 John. I'll show you right now. And so I went on to show them that. And I'll show you guys that. I don't want to give, you, give away too much. That was just for free. Let me just uh, let me back up before I get ahead of myself to talk about the order of salvation. And this is how I want to do it. I'm sorry if this is not big enough. Um, as you know, I am not a tech-savvy person. But look what, I, look what I did here. I mean, isn't this nice? <laughs> right? This should count for something. I want you to notice 
the, the graph that we're going to be filling in as we talk about the order of salvation. I want you to see the three columns going along the top. We're talking about the phase of salvation, the aspect of salvation, and then whether or not that aspect falls in line with either a monergistic activity or a synergistic activity. You see that? It's not, um, not too difficult. You could draw it out. The only thing I would say is if you're going to draw out a whole graph of this, maybe make about 15 lines because that's about, actually, only, I think you'll need about 17 different lines to go along with this graph. But uh, you'll see what I did here with the phase of salvation. What I mean by C-S-A-S-C-S is whether or not this aspect of salvation is part of the conceptual nature of salvation, the actual nature of salvation, and the completed nature of salvation. That's kind of the way we're going to work. And then we're going to put the aspect of salvation that we're talking about right in the middle there under aspect of salvation. Any questions about how we're going to proceed? No? <laughs> this is what the graph is for. Because I don't speak English, so I gave you a picture. Um, where does salvation come from? And I'll write it up here larger on the board, too, if you need me to. But um, where, where does salvation begin? With God? Okay. What about that? Yes, sir? His calling. His decree. Okay. Um, when you do the study of the doctrine of the order of salvation, typically what theologians will do is they will begin with this doctrine. I'll put it up here for you. <clears throat> Foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. It starts with foreknowledge. Now, let's look at our graph. What uh, phase of salvation are we talking about? And furthermore, what type of work is this? Is this a monergistic act or is this a synergistic act? Well, maybe we should define what is synergism and what is monergism. Monergism means that there is only one agent that is active, right? Mono and then energos, which means to work. So... Uh, only one person working. So in other words, it means this is a work of, the, of God only. Whereas synergism means that there is a human and divine activity involved in that aspect of salvation. So where do you think foreknowledge falls? Is it a monergistic activity or is it a synergistic activity? Are we involved in foreknowledge? No. Spoken like good Calvinists. Right? So there we have, oh, look how fancy. There we have the first aspect of salvation, and it belongs to the conceptual aspect of salvation. In other words, this is something that takes place when you think of concept, what do you think? Thought, mind. It is something that God has conceived. So this still is relegated to the realm of God's mind. Somebody mentioned the decree, right? That which God has purposed to do, that's what, that which he thought to do. I mean, the very word foreknowledge, right? And it is a monergistic act. Um, my wife and I are working out right now. We're going to a personal trainer. And, uh, well, you guys would be proud of me, I tell you. Um, and, um, you know, uh, 
We have a running joke, me and uh, the personal trainer guy. I got to be careful how I tell this joke. Um, he says, he said, you know how, um, he goes, you know how you're always telling me my theology is all jacked up? He's like, that's, like, that's kind of like your body. Your, your body is all jacked up. He's like, so let's make a deal. Okay, you're going to fix my theology and I'm going to fix your body. So I was talking to uh, Dustin about this and, and he had never heard of the order Salutis and he had never known that salvation actually had an order. So I started drawing it out. This is where this graph came from. I drew it out one night and I thought this would be good. It's just for us to have a, a, a table in our minds. You know, My desire would be for every person in this church to be able to reproduce from memory this graph to be able to at any time and this is like for example if you're teaching Sunday school you should be able to rattle this graph off at any given time because at any given time that you're in some sort of soteriological controversy it is good to ground yourself back into the order of salvation to kind of stabilize yourself doctrinally speaking but um, uh, so again it is conceptual we're talking about foreknowledge, and it is monergistic. It is something only God does. Question? I was just going to ask. Yes, sir? Would you be able to send that PowerPoint to this? I can, maybe for a small fee or something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can. Of course I can. I can uh, send this out to all of you, um, all of you guys. But um, let's start with foreknowledge, okay? Um, we're not going to cover this in great detail, but I just want to kind of hit... Um, some of the general uh, meaning of all this, okay? What is foreknowledge? What does it mean for God to have foreknowledge? Yes, sir? To know beforehand. To know beforehand, okay? That is certainly part of, the Greek word is, is uh, oh boy, prog, uh, prognosis, okay? Prognosis is the Greek word. I always try not to write Greek when I'm gonna about to write Greek, but it's hard. But that is the transliteration, prognosis. Okay, it comes from pra, meaning before. That's a preposition, and then gnosis, meaning knowledge. So knowledge beforehand, and the word prognosis certainly means foreknowledge in the sense of to know ahead of time. But is that what the word means when it's talking about God? Because this is the question I'm going to ask you. What is there under heaven? What is there in heaven and on earth that God does not foreknow? Nothing. Right? So, is there any other connotation to foreknowledge? Would you also, I guess, put that there's like depth, uh, intimate? Intimate knowledge? Okay. And what do you mean by that? Because he knows everything exhaustively, right? Right. God knows I, I everything exhaustively. Exhaustively, what I would say. Okay, so omniscient knowledge that he knows ahead of time? Yeah, that is what God does know. But that's not what we're getting at. Chris, you have a... To, to enter into a, like a covenant relationship beforehand. Now, like, where in the world did you get that idea based on the word foreknowledge? From Romans 8, 39. <laughs> That's right. Those whom he foreknew, right? So turn to Romans chapter 8 really quickly. Again, I I was telling myself last night, I was looking at this like, how am I not going to get bogged down? We're going to get to the third aspect and we're going to be done. Oh, well, I mean, I guess we're not under any time constraint, are we? 
so foreknowledge is in Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Right? Now that is a that is a dead giveaway that the word foreknowledge cannot possibly mean simply that God knew something or someone ahead of time. Right? Because then, according to the logic of the text, what what Paul would be saying is, since he foreknows everyone, including Satan, including Judas, including every apostate, including every heretic, since he foreknows them already, they were predestined. Predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his son. So did God predestine uh, every person that uh, he knows ahead of time would come into existence we haven't even defined what is it that he foreknows about them, but let's just say the fact that they would exist, okay, does that mean that they will be predestined? No, of course not. That would lead to a theological impossibility and to a brute contradiction in the Bible because Jesus said, narrow is the way. Few be there that find it, right? So obviously it cannot mean that God knows ahead of time who will exist because then that would mean that God would predestine everybody to uh, be conformed to the image of his son, which is, of course, not what scripture... That would be uh, a heresy. Does anybody know what I'm thinking about? Universalism. That would lead to universalism. So it cannot be that. So yeah, uh, Chris is right. The word foreknowledge speaks of God having a... uh, or really determining to have an intimate relationship, not just an intimate knowledge, but to have an intimate relationship with someone in the recesses of eternity, which is difficult for us to grasp, but we are talking about God, so if you're, if you're a bit overwhelmed, join the club. Mm-hmm. Because we are talking about the mind of God, the boundless, limitless, infinite mind of God, and the decrees of God. So, before all time, God had set his Love, his intimate love, uh, I guess to flesh it all the way out, it means that God has set his covenant bond upon somebody. Um, Turn to Jeremiah chapter 1, for example, and then we'll move on, unless there are any questions. Jeremiah chapter 1. There you have a specific person who who falls into this category. And it's good that we go here because... It also leads us to the Hebrew derivative of the Greek word prognosis. So in Jeremiah 1, 5, I know this is a passage many of you know, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Now, a lot of people say, you know, a lot of people, and rightly so, they use this passage to refute abortion, right? This is God forming somebody in the womb, already knowing them, right? But really, that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is not to refute abortion. I mean, thankfully, it does do that. But the point of the passage is that God is telling uh, uh, Jeremiah that his election to become a prophet is rooted in his election not to prophethood, but to salvation. And that God had foreknown him, had known him in an intimate way when prior to his even coming into the womb. Now, this is not talking about the pre-existence of Jeremiah. That is also a heresy. The pre-existence of the soul, that is something Mormonism and others would teach. That is not what this is saying. This is saying that God foreknew Jeremiah. That, that, that God had already 
determined to enter into a covenant bond with Jeremiah. And that is the basis, or that is the foundation of why Jeremiah can become a prophet. That's why. Coming from foreknowledge, what is the next step? What would you say follows foreknowledge? Give you a clue. We already looked at a passage that seems to imply it pretty clearly. Okay, predestination. That's right. And predestination is also conceptual and monergistic. Uh, so go back to Romans chapter 8 to see this. And there's many, 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 many places where predestination is taught. It's a difficult doctrine and people struggle with it, but it is so clearly taught in Scripture that your only hope is either to redefine the word or to avoid the passage of Scripture altogether. And then you're, you know, you're going to pay the price for that. I mean, there's no way around what the Bible teaches. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, right? He predestined. The word predestined just simply means to determine ahead of time. God had already determined ahead of time that we would be conformed to the image of his Son, that is, those whom he predestined. See how the order of salvation is working now? Now let me make a, let me make a distinction here between time and logic. Time and logic, okay? Um, what we're talking about with the order of salvation, we have to be careful of this, is not to think so much in terms of a chronology that there is, this is happening in successes of time as much as we are talking about a logical order. You see what I'm saying? Because really, in the economy of God, these things are all instantaneous, right? But logically, we cannot defer to not having an orderly representation of the, of the order salutis because we know, for example, there are some blatant reasons why we must have some sort of order. We don't put sanctification prior to justification, right? That is the Catholic heresy. We also don't put glorification prior to, let's say, regeneration. That would make absolutely no sense. So there is a chronological order, but we have to be careful of that, and we have to think more along a logical order. And I would say that's kind of, this, that's kind of what we're looking at here with foreknowledge and with predestination. It's not so much that God said, okay, there, I foreknew. Okay, like, give me a second. There, I predestined. <laughs> right? In the mind of God, these things are so instantaneous. Right? They're part of his eternal decree. And it's hard, it's deep, it's profound. I don't know that I have all the answers. Sola Scriptura. Yes, sir? Is, uh, would you say foreknowledge is synonymous with uh, omniscient, or is it more of a micro-level view of it? Well, it's not synonymous with omniscient, because God being omniscient doesn't necessarily mean anything, uh, that does not necessarily mean that that implies anything for salvation. So foreknowledge is a subset of the overall omniscience of God, but his knowledge is more than just a, a uh, faculty or a mental... Uh, it has more, that, more to do than just God's cognition. It has to do with his volition, what he wills, versus what he just simply knows abstractly. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's the way that I would define it. Um, so predestination is there. In the text, it's uh, unavoidable. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. These are the big ones, right? I mean, all you good Calvinists know these by memory. But it is part of this nevertheless. It's all part of it. 
Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons. Now, um, you know, if you struggle, if your spouse struggles, if your friends, your family struggle with the doctrine of predestination, election, foreknowledge, be certain that if you conclude with a philosophical um, problem, a philosophical controversy that that's all it is in your mind, is it's a fearful thought and you're having a hard time put wrapping your hands around it, you have not reached the place where Paul wants you to be. Because for the Apostle Paul, and this is one of the reasons why I had to leave my Arminian church, is because I was told, no, keep the doctrine of predestination quiet. It will offend people, and you can't grow a church that way, right? Keep it down. I thought, wait a minute, keep it down? The Apostle Paul begins the letter extolling the Lord. This is a doxology, Blessed be the God and Father. And what is he doxologizing about? <laughs> Election? Predestination? <laughs> Does that sound like a lot of the worship that you hear today in the modern church? Not really. Where are the, where are the songs about predestination and election and foreknowledge? They're usually bound up in some old crusty, crusty hymnal somewhere. right? That's why we sing the hymns. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah. Huh? And K-Dub, of course. Yeah. you got to go to some of the theologians of hip-hop for all of that. So I'm just saying, this is the attitude. This is where it leads us to. Um, and any questions on that? Because I know it's not... Yes, sir. So what would be the difference between foreknowledge and predestination? Good question. Yeah, good question. I think one has to do with God's... Um, uh, the nature of the relationship that we have with God, and one has to do with God's decree to bring it about. Right. So the one indicates that we are in a covenant of love with God. It's really remarkable. I mean, if foreknowledge is what the theologians in the Bible you know, obviously say that it is, it definitely is amazing that God is, is motivated to set his love upon you before the foundation of the world. This should make us stand in awe, stand in wonder. And then predestination is his volition before time begins to bring it about, to determine it. Hands everywhere. Robert. Can we accurately describe it as the non-action, the, the, the plan of action, and then jumping to the actionable portion of the plan? Sure. I mean, they all have to do with God's volition, right? What he wills to do. That's right. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, Chris? Oh, I was just going to say, to add to that, the way I view it is we all have free will, right? I, I wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say that? No, sir. I, don't, I think the doctrine of free will is a, it depends on what you mean by that. I believe in real choices, real human choices, so that we're not automatons, we're not robots in human bodies. Mm-hmm. But uh, the concept of free will in, uh, my position is that it's, it's a foreign concept to Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, matter, matter of fact, I would say the opposite is true. We don't have a free will. We have a fallen will. 
a bound will. So with foreknowledge, he obviously knows everything. Um, or he knows what's coming. It's more than that, remember? Okay. It's, his de- it's his decision to enter into an intimate covenant relationship with you. Yeah, and then we have the calling where the elect are called to him. Yeah. And then at that such point... As a result of that. ...is the free will accountability, which he knows what we will do or say. Is that one view? Well, he always knows what we're going to do or say. It's not a mystery to God what people will do, right? But he but, uh, circumstances to motivate us to uh, submit to this call. Yeah, and uh, part of me wants to say we'll get there because <laughs> we're jumping quite ahead. But the, 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 but the conclusions you're coming to or the questions that you're raising are natural, yeah. right? Because we do go from this place of what we're talking about right now is conceptual salvation to actual salvation, right? In time and space and how it works out. Um, but um, what all that looks like, I mean, is, you know, is... is is what we're looking at now. You know, that's why we need to go point by point. But um, you know, it it raises a good question. If you don't define foreknowledge in this covenantal fashion, then your only option is to say, "Well, God knew ahead of time what you would do," which that is not what it means, because then you end with those false conclusions, like God knows what everybody's going to do. So it can't possibly mean that. So. And grammatically, here's the grammar, is that whether you're looking at the Hebrew word, which is the Hebrew word is, remember this word, guys? Yada. Yada is the Hebrew verb that God uses to know know people. And when it's used of God in relation to his people, it never means simply to know ahead of time. It always speaks of his desire to come into a covenant relationship with them or his decision to do that. Yeah. So, whenever these words are used of God, it's not God knowing something about you. It's not God knowing about an event that's going to transpire. It's never used that way. It's always used of God having an intimate knowledge of the person and coming into a relationship with him, just like Jeremiah. That he came into a a relationship with Jeremiah through his foreknowledge through his desire to know him in a covenant way. And then, what's next? So let's move on from there to this. We'll get there. Hopefully I won't leave anything. The next one is, of course, election. So it's almost like you can put these side by side, right? It's almost like you can put foreknowledge and then slash predestination slash election. They really should go along the same plane and they all belong to the conceptual nature of salvation. And so right there in Ephesians, right where we were, blessed is the God and Father who uh, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What a mammoth, mammoth doctrine in Christ. This is what makes it all happen, folks, is whether or not you are in Christ. And this is what's so amazing is that in eternity, God already saw us, if you would. He already thought of us in Christ. It's just amazing uh, that we would be in Christ, that he would put us in Christ, that we would be in union with Christ. And then it says, just as he chose us, that's the election that we're talking about. That's the election that we're talking about. Election is really um, everywhere. 
Uh, it's all over the place. So turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And this is why, you know, as a young, you know, Armenian Christian, having no concept of any of these things, I didn't know. I, you know, I, I thought election was the way, of, what did I hear one preacher say? Well, you know, God chooses everyone to be saved, the devil chooses everyone to be damned, and you cast the deciding vote. I've heard that from the pulpit. And uh, that is certainly not what the doctrine of election is about. Um, those are popular tracts, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Who, will you, who, who do you vote for? That's right. That's right. What's going to be your choice, right? It's just uh, This is the difference between an anthropocentric worldview and a theocentric worldview. It's either anthropocentric is humanism. That's why our world, our society, thrives on humanism. Yes, ma'am. Right. You know, so how do you like those types of things where we do see, you know, people, the Bible saying that? Yeah. How would you? You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of statements like that. Joshua 24, you know, choose this day whom you will serve. I mean, what he's what is he talking about there? I think what that could be easily explained by the fact that what uh, Joshua is doing is he's telling the people of God, pick whatever pagan deity you choose to follow. Uh, to your own detriment, you know, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So it's not really talking about making a choice to re- repent and believe or follow um, or, or to be saved, right? It's saying, look, you know the covenant God, Yahweh, uh, choose whichever one of these pagan deities you want, we're going to follow the Lord. You know I mean, so there's a lot of verses, you know, that speak to that. But um, I don't get too sidetracked here, but Romans 11, beginning in verse 7, uh, this is almost the conclusion of the argument of Romans going all the way back to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 begins with the controversy. How in the world is Israel perishing? I mean, think about it. You're a Jew. You've grown up in Israel. You're surrounded by Jews. You're, you're Paul the Apostle. You're a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. You're, you're the, the sect of the Pharisees. You, I mean, you are an Israelite of Israelites, a Jew of Jews, right? And all the Jews are perishing around you. None of them are coming to the Messiah. As a matter of fact, they murdered him, and now they're persecuting the church. What do we make of this? Well, his answer to this is the doctrine of election. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So the answer to how it is that so many Israelites are not coming to faith in Christ is that they are not elect. They are not chosen. And this is where, at the end of the day, you know, um, the Apostle Paul says, look, Better to put our hand over our mouth, right, and not question God. Better for us to say, who can know the mind of God? Who's going to counsel him? How, she, how he should uh, carry about his, his redemptive work? None of us. Okay, let me move quickly. Any questions on election? Any questions on this? So, we have, can you guys see that? Is this in vain? Kim, can you see that? I can now. You can now? Yeah. What happened before? It was... <laughs> 
Okay, but you can see that a little bit. It's almost like you're at the uh, eye doctor, right? And he's telling you to. <laughs> can you see that? <laughs> Sorry, I tried. So some of some of y'all in the front row, you get the you get the you get a good shot. Yes, sir. Anybody else just thinking to try to interact with the chart there? Uh oh. On the right hand side, look for monergistic or synergistic. I thought that Romans eight passage was so good because it goes through so many of these foreknowledge, predestination, election. It's always saying he does these things. He does these things. Right. Referring to God, you know, which shows that. It's all monergistic. All of this stuff that we're talking about is all things that God does. Right. And again, we're going to get into all this in greater detail. We're going to look at the specific texts. This is, if you would, this is like the 10,000-foot view of the whole doctrine of a salvation that I'm supposed to finish up here in the next 15 minutes, which is not going to happen. Yes, sir? When we're talking about the conceptual nature of salvation and we're in the realm of, of God's mind, what's going on, is there ever a space in there where we can put the, the, the thought of his purposes of it? Or is that just outside of the conceptual nature and even higher, if you will, because we don't necessarily fully know that? Because when I read passages like Proverbs 16.4, and it says, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Um, is that outside of, of the realm of where we can discuss it in any great detail? No, I think his volition is bound up in his decrees. I mean, the decrees are bound up in his mind. The mind of God and the volition of God are one. You can't separate them. By conceptual, I want to focus on what happens in eternity. You know, conceptual, actual, that's actually Anthony Hokema's uh, uh, distinction that he makes. I thought it was very helpful to me, but... Um, you know, to separate what happens in eternity versus what happens in time and space. Right? So let's move on to that. What is the first step in actual salvation? Yes, sir. Regeneration. Regeneration. Let me put this up here. Yeah, regeneration. Um, this is what I was trying to tell my uh, Church of Christ friends. Here it is, regeneration. And regeneration is a monergistic act. Turn to Romans chapter 3, the classic passage on regeneration. Now, if you're Church of Christ, you are interpreting John 3 as referring to baptism. But this is what Jesus is talking about, getting baptized. Yes, sir. Come on, John 3? John 3. You said Romans 3. Did I say Romans 3? All good things come from Romans 3. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. What about justification? Would that not be the first phase of salvation? Like, time to be justified first? Nope. We'll get there. <laughs> Great question, right? And you see why, if you're teaching the children and, you know, the kids' ministry, and they ask a question about... What comes first, the chicken or the egg, justification or sanctification, right? Why it's so good to have a proper order of salvation. It's so critical for us. But um, in John chapter 3, I mean, Jesus makes it very clear that unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, verse 3. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Now understand, this in the, in the gospel of John, to see the kingdom is code for what? To see, what's that? Salvation. Yeah, to see the kingdom, that is, that is code for, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
salvation. That's code for knowing God. It's code for eternal life. You know, uh, the, the, the Gospel of John is so interesting like that. It's so different than the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But uh, to see the kingdom cannot even happen. A person cannot have a spiritual discernment. He cannot participate in the kingdom of God unless he is pri- prior to that, he is born of God. He is born again. Literally, born again, or as the Greek word implies, to be born from above. To be born from above. Now, in verse 5, it says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. What does that mean? To be born of water. To be cleansed by water? No. Okay. I'll let Robert chase that thought down a little bit. Well, it, it, it was, I mean, it, it was using imagery of what water does in a human sense. How do you know that? Because we see that in the Old Testament. Don't give it away. <laughs> Where? Uh, we see it in Leviticus. Okay. Okay. But what about but what about in the Old Testament talking about being born again? Because you're right. I mean, ceremonial ceremonially in Leviticus, like Leviticus chapter eight, right? The priests are washed with water to prepare them for their priestly duties. But that is not a symbol of being born again. But where in the Old Testament do we find a symbol of water washing us so that we are born again? No one the flood. Okay, this guy keeps on. Get right to it. What is it? Ezekiel 36. Are you there? Yeah. Okay, read it for us, Kato. That's good. It says, I will sprinkle sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from, out your, from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will give you a new heart. See that? That is the language of circumcision of the heart. Circumcision of the heart goes all the way back to Deuteronomy where Paul, uh, Moses tells the people of Israel, be circumcised in your heart. Well, circumcision of the heart is what the Apostle Paul equates with regeneration, with being born again. Yes, sir. Titus 3.5 also alludes to that. Okay. Uh, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's right. That's right. It speaks of cleansing. Um, now, Chris? Have you listened to Piper's sermon on that? The free will of the wind? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but, but that's a good reminder. John chapter 3, Piper preached on it in 2009. The sermon's titled The Free Will of the Wind. Yeah, praise the Lord. And he goes over that and ties in Ezekiel 36. That's right. It's about... Specifically, he ties in, you know, the doctrine of irresistible grace. Right, right. Well, and I'm glad you, I said a good reminder because in verse 8 of John chapter 3, right, Paul, uh, uh, Jesus sums it up as not two realities, but one reality, right? The wind blows wherever it wishes. There's the free will of the wind, which is talking about the Spirit of God. And you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going Watch this. Here's the analogy. This is, this is what it corresponds to. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
So he's not saying so is everyone who is baptized and then born of the Spirit, or you know, or vice versa. It's one reality, right? To be born of water and the Spirit speaks of one spiritual truth, one spiritual dynamic, which is regeneration. That's what it's referring to. And it is a monergistic act. In other words, regeneration is the reason why we believe. In other words, the reason why dead, formerly dead people can do anything spiritual is because God, prior to you doing anything good, any good deeds, as Titus 3, 3 5 says, before you did anything good, God gave you life. He quickened you. He opened your eyes like Lydia. He opened your heart. He opened your ears, heart like Lydia. There you go. To hear, listen to that, not physically, but to hear spiritually. So this is the next aspect. Effectual calling. Effectual calling. This is put, again, side by side. Regeneration, effectual call. I like what Burkhoff says. Burkhoff says, regeneration implants the ear that can hear the effectual call of God. Any questions or problems with that or... Chris, you should think they have to go backwards. Are they backwards? Yeah, I think. That, I mean, to me, I thought regeneration came through the the, the gospel call. You know, yeah, the they're preaching of the gospel. You know. Yeah, and this is why I say they're synonymous, or they're you know they're these are logical in their order, not chronological. If you want to put effectual call prior to regeneration, fine. We are born through the word. It says, you know what I mean. So that's why theologians would go that way. Uh, but the important thing is this, that unless a person is quickened, God could call you all day long and you would not hear anything. You wouldn't hear anything. Um, and uh, this is actually, uh, this is, now, now this is a question. Is the effectual call a monergistic or synergistic act? Is the effectual call a monergistic or synergistic act? I would say synergistic. Okay. Because the gospel must be preached, and in order for that to occur, What's that? there must be a preacher involved, hence somebody born of God preaching the gospel. Right. Yeah, or, or not. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think you're right. It, <laughs> well, well, I, was, I, was mean, I was meaning, I was meaning that the person doesn't necessarily have to be saved to give that that call. Yes. They can mentally know the gospel and be preaching it. Right. And God right. still uses that. Yeah. Unlike regeneration, yeah. I mean, the effectual call does mean that you respond, that you have a yeah. certain. Um, Assent to the call, whereas regeneration, you it, you are one hundred percent passive. Yeah. In regeneration, you do not in any way give yourself birth, new birth. The effectual, you do. Can, you can it be both? Can it be both? Yeah. I got point to. If it's both, then it's definitely synergistic. John the Baptist, he didn't hear the call, but he knew Mary. You know. And in Elizabeth's womb, he jumped for joy, he said. And I always kind of go back to uh, yeah. you know, people that talk about I, babies that die before, right. you know, uh, before they're able to comprehend. Right. 
So, uh, I would, I personally, Juan, wouldn't build a doctrine on John the Baptist leaping in the womb. I think that's more of a messianic sign. I think that's just a, that's just a, a miraculous, you know, sign that Jesus, that God gave as confirmation of the incarnation. But I don't think that's supposed to be for us a pattern, right? A descriptive or a prescriptive pattern for us to try to follow, you know, to try to think of regenerate children in the womb. I think you're on. Very, very thin ice there. So, I, I mean, I acknowledge the phenomenon. It definitely happened. It's definitely in the text. But is it prescriptive for us, or is it a pattern that we should expect to follow in? I, I wouldn't make it a feature of my ministry. No. Well, would, yeah. Do you say is it an exception? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Some, sometimes there are those, you know, exceptions like that. Uh, Tony? Effectual call. We define it as the gospel. Very good question. So effectual calling has to do with the calling, not so much externally hearing the gospel, right? But internally as a summons to salvation, a summons to repentance. It obviously works in conjunction with uh, the external call, but effectual calling, when people are talking about effectual calling, it means that God is actually summoning you to salvation. Like when Jesus said, no man can come to me, that's my father's drawing. That's effectual calling. So that would be monogistic, right? Yeah, that's yes, yeah, that, an argument can be made for that, my, for sure. My thinking was um, the effectual calling, or, or is that monergistic, or is the response to it synergistic? Maybe that would... The response is definitely synergistic. Right. Yeah. But uh, thinking, the, for me, it was... The call the, itself... The call itself would be monergistic. The response yeah. synergistic. I think that should have been an S, actually, an M, actually. I don't know that mm-hmm. I meant to even put an S there. I'll have to go back and look, but... Um... Yeah, it's an M. Oh, see? That was a mistake. Chris, way back there. Does the effectual call go out to all people... No, it does not. That's, a, that's the difference between you know, what theologians call the general call and the effectual call. Right? So the general call is the call that we give to all men to be saved. That is the gospel call to everyone to be saved. But those who respond in faith have done so on the basis of God's effectual calling. That's right. Okay, this is the next step quickly, repentance and faith. That follows on the heels of having been regenerate, having been called by God, and therefore the person who is effectually called, drawn by the Father, like Tony pointed out, they respond in repentance and faith, which we can safely say is a synergistic act. It involves both human and divine activity, Now, we know that it it involves human activity, right? God doesn't repent for you. You repent. But how is it that it can be still a divine activity? It's granted. It's granted? Repentance is a gift of God. Repentance is a gift of God? Where where do we go in the Bible to see that? That repent... First Timothy, Timothy, if you find it, read it for us. A whole book will do nothing good for us here. We need a text. Philippians one twenty nine. Philippians one twenty nine. Okay, give give us that. 
For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So the idea of faith. That's right. And repentance and faith cannot be separated. Right? So repentance and faith follows that. Oh, and look, of course, these are all actual aspects of salvation. They go beyond the conceptual realm to the actual realm of salvation. This is transpiring in real time, in the soul of a person. So what's after uh, repentance and faith? What's after repentance and faith? After repentance and faith is justification. (laughs) Right? A, A person that repents and believes is justified. Right? Uh, back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This is uh, kind of a truncated right, version of the order salutis, but it is Pauline. It is the golden chain of redemption. Right? Romans 8.30, it says, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And that calling there, again, is effectual, not general. And these whom he called, he also justified right so effectual calling repentance and faith all going together what follows after that is justification what is justification is justification where god makes us morally righteous okay that's right you're declared why do you say the word declare It's a legal declaration. So the declaration means that justification is a forensic issue. It's a legal matter. Right? Chris? I like to think of it as you have a right standing with God now. That's right. Even though you actually are guilty and you actually have committed the acts that damn you. That's right. You now have right standing. Even though you haven't even been sanctified yet. Right. You haven't even been conformed to Christ because you haven't gotten to the next step of the... <laughs> what is the next step? Sanctification. <laughs> what kind of sanctification? What's that? Progressive sanctification. Almost. So, we'll get there. So the next step, after being justified, being made righteous in the sight of God, right after that, we can say what issues forth from that. Now you are righteous in the sight of God. God can now legally adopt you into his family as his child. So typically, theologians put adoption right next to justification. And again, adoption and justification are both monergistic acts of God. They happen solely on the basis of what God has done. God is the one who justifies. God is the one who adopts us. Right. So adoption takes place. Uh, that's why you see that in Ephesians, for example. Ephesians chapter, back to Ephesians chapter 1, you see his reference to adoption. Right after predestination. We were predestined, we were chosen before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to what? To adoption. We were predestined to be adopted. Now, now that we're adopted, we're brought into the family of God, the process of sanctification begins, but what is the initial step of sanctification? It is what theologians call definitive Sanctification. So sanctification has two different aspects. 
These two aspects are that, number one, uh, you are once for all sanctified. That doesn't mean that you are as holy as you'll ever be on the moment of your regeneration. That's not what that means. But what that means is that the, the moment you repent, you enter into a certain level of sanctification right away. You immediately come into a sanctified life. The dominion of sin is broken. Right? And then, or we should point out, definitive sanctification is a monergistic act. It happens not, uh, it's something that happens to you. It's not something that you do. Right? God sanctifies you. He washes you. He cleanses you. He puts you into a holy life. And then you begin the second step, which is progressive sanctification. This is the graph that I put in my book on sanctification. Definitive, and you go into the Christian life, and then your sanctification looks like this as you're going heavenward. As you're going heavenward, you look like this, and you hope that you don't have any of these going on. You know? But you are going up. It is progressing, right, to eternity. So, this is definitive sanctification. There's an immediate jump in your in holy living, and then you begin the process of progressive sanctification all the life long. And it is, as you would testify, a arduous, agonizing process where we make war with our sin our whole life long. Right. Next step is perseverance. Perseverance. We should end it there because I'm completely out of time. I know Chris is probably totally upset. It's not a way, good way to come back to the church is to take up all the time. But I've done it, and um, there's so much. Um, let's leave it there. I can't go any further. Let's pray, and then we'll go. Father, Lord, um, with so many of these doctrines swirling around in our minds, it's very easy for us to think, boy, who can know all this stuff? But Lord, we know that you've called us um, to gaze at the beauty of the diamond of salvation, to see every aspect, every facet as a different aspect of something beautiful and wonderful, that the doctrine of salvation is a gem, and that, Father, we're looking here at the very soul of the gospel truth. And so, Father, I just pray that you would use this to strengthen us, to edify us, to build us up in the most holy faith, Father. And pray that you'd bless the rest of our time studying soteriology, that our church would just get more grounded and strengthened, that each one of us would be a good Berean. Each one of us would be a a good workman who can rightly divide the word of truth. Lord, thank you. Bless our worship in Jesus' name. Amen.